0: This podcast is brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art, tlc.ac.nz. So,
1: um, well, let's talk about your um, adventures around the world because you've you've travelled to a lot of conferences and things. What what do you actually get out of that travel, Alan?
0: Well, the travelling is, especially if they're in a new country or a new location, like I've been to New Zealand before, and spent a little over two weeks traveling around the South Island and then some of the North Island. That was back in 2001. And then in 2013, when Wayne and the group put together the first one of these, uh, of course, I went to the area in the North that I had not been to. New Plymouth was on my list, but I ran out of time. Uh, My bus trips and train trips around the South Island took longer than I thought they would. I'm so used to the bloody United States, I thought, oh, New Zealand, it will be zip, no problem. And I got to Wellington and went, "Uh uh-uh, no trains for the North Island, i got to start flying. So I flew to Rotorua, and then I flew from Rotorua to Auckland, but I had to scratch off New Plymouth and a couple areas that I had hoped to go to. But I got to see him in 2013, thanks to Wayne. Um, I love to travel. It's been in my blood since I was a little boy. My parents were both immigrants, one from England, one from Scotland. And my father, by the time I was born and old enough to know who he, what he, who he was or have a sense of him, he was an extremely devoted, zealous engineer. He would work 100 hours, 200 hours. I mean, he loved to work. But one thing he did want to do is see his country. So my mother was able to get him out of Detroit Once he got on the road, he was fine. The first couple of vacations were one or two weeks because that's all he had. The last couple were like five weeks long. And once he got out of Detroit and away from the office, he loved it. He loved driving around. He loved seeing new places. And they instilled that in me. By the age of 17, um, I had been in 48 mainland states. You name the monument, you name the natural forest or whatever, I've been there, I've seen it. At least once, um, And then I started doing it. Even my first wife and I, we traveled a little bit. Uh, but after I got my divorce and my father's death in 77 is when I started doing what I do now. And that's travel to multiple countries in a single trip. And wow. that one I did 20, 24 countries in 110 days and learned a lot about traveling learned a lot about myself, which was the main reason for going. And then over the next few years, sporadically, a few countries here, a few countries there. And then uh, 2001, I went on my first completely around the world trip, single trip. And I've now taken nine of those, uh, ranging from 84 days down to nine. So anyway, and I just like going and I've only... I want to see a lot more. My next two super long trips, if I get back to the position of having the funds to do it or finding a creative way to fund it, is I want to go through all the Spanish and Portuguese speaking countries, which means going north-south yes. around the earth, longitudinally instead of laterally. And then I want to go throughout Africa, which is not always completely safe. I thought, of course, Abu Dhabi was safe too, but... Four weeks later, I realized it wasn't. Uh, we flew up there, arrived at 6.30 in the morning, and at 10 o'clock, we started the two-day conference. And on the Monday, we were scheduled to an appointment I set up to go to Dubai to meet with some people who had gotten, gone through some special training with the use of my mentor, Paul Torrance's creativity test. Well, I left the hotel at 7 in the morning to go walk, and I love to do that. It's how I start my day. And, of course, I take my camera with me all the time. And I was out walking just a few blocks from the hotel, and I walked down one street, saw a bunch of beautifully done duplexes or quadruplexes, photographed them. Uh, There were a couple where I photographed the people where I thought, "Uh uh-oh, they may not like me doing this. I better move on. And I kept going and I found a uh, mosque, kind of a simple design. Asked the young man if I could go inside and would it be all right to take a photograph. I think he understood me. When I came out of that, there was a camouflage pickup truck and the guy waved me into the back. He didn't speak English except he knew the name or the city name Atlanta. He asked me where from. And I said, Atlanta, because they wouldn't know where the hell I'm from. And he got all excited. Then he drove me to what was labeled in giant letters in English, reception. I don't know really what that was part of. All I know is it was part of some secure area. Uh, I have no idea what it was. Never did find out. Anyway... Within an hour, they let me go and warned me, no photographs, secure area. I asked them twice, what does that mean? Do you mean the building behind us? Because I hadn't even looked there except at this reception, which was out front. And... Um He never responded, so off I went. I got a couple blocks away, was about to get across the main road and away from whatever that was, and I happened to look across the street to my right and look up in the air, and there on the light pole was a beautifully designed sign that said, Photography Forbidden. And I thought that would be a cute slide for some blog or some speech later on, and within less than five minutes, I was picked up again, and that started my four weeks in jail and prison for taking that one photograph.
1: Oh, my God. What, when you were in the jail, what what were the conditions like in Abu Dhabi?
0: Um, it was it was a safe jail. It's like this one woman I know who's a translator for the State Department. I knew her husband for many years through creativity, and I met her when the two of them met and married. She was a translator for the UN then. Now she's a translator for the U.S. State Department. She was asked to call my daughter when they found out where I was to try to see if she could help soothe her fears. And her basic line, as she told me in D.C. when I was there in December, let's be thankful your father's in a safe jail. This was low-level crime. Yeah. There was maybe one, one guy where it was um, DUI, accidental death. That was the worst crime. Most of them were things that in the U.S. they would never go to jail for until after they had been convicted. Cutting their wife's credit cards um not paying all their credit card debt, not passing a bad check, all kinds of things like that. Most of the crime and the more serious one were political in, in nature. There's one guy who's a Ph.D. in uh, human resources, spoke excellent English. He and I talked quite a lot. He also was an avid exerciser, so he helped motivate me. I, didn't, I could never catch up to him. He walked too damn fast, so I walked the other way. So I could pass him instead of him always passing me. But uh, he was there because he was a good friend with the rebel leader of the rebel party in Egypt. They went to high school, but somehow he was writing to him, and they got hold of his emails and they arrested him. He'd been there for months. Another fellow, a very devout Muslim. In fact, he led most of the prayer sessions every day, almost all five of them. Young fellow, huge young fellow. He was there because they saw a Twitter, a tweet that he wrote to a friend in Syria trying to help friends of his in Syria to get out because of ISIS. And for that, he was arrested. He had already been there for two years. He was on a five-year sentence. Most of the rest of us were there until they took us to court and either went to another prison or were released. The numbers were constantly changing almost daily. This gave
1: you an incredible insight into a whole different way of viewing the world.
0: Right. Well, some of the stuff I've been writing that I understood, I, I made a deal with myself, so to speak. I, I joked that the older I get, the more multiple personalities I realize I have. The good thing is I'm never alone. Anyway, um, I'm constantly debating with myself, trying to look at things from multiple perspectives. Yeah. And I made, I made a deal with myself in the jail that I would write nothing down that they could use against me. And of course, in the jail, it was easy. I had no pens or paper. In the prison, I did eventually get some pens from other prisoners and some paper. But all I did was I created mental games to keep me going, like write the names of all our states, write the names of all the U.S. presidents and try to put them in order. I used to know those, but uh, I haven't taught leadership courses using presidents as role models for years, so I've gotten floppy. Then I would make notes of, listing every person I've ever met who did a, a session at any of the creativity conferences. And I got that up to about 400. Oh. Those are kind of, I'm, I came up with many strategies. A lot of them had to do with creative thinking techniques, finding funny. Uh, I've done a lot of reading and studying and going to workshops on humor. And one of the fellows, the very first one I ever went to, A guy named Joel Goodman, he's devoted the last 45 to 50 years of his life to humor, trying to help people see the value of humor in their lives. And I've been to some of his conferences, but the first time was just a little short session he did one night in Buffalo at the Creative Problem Solving Institute. And he made a comment among many, but the one that stuck the most was, ask yourself, when something crappy, shitty, horrible, terrible happens, Ask yourself, will I laugh about this someday? And if you have any inkling that you might, then start laughing now. Well, looking back through my training as a counselor and master's degree in counseling, I went, oh, hell, most theories in counseling and psychology believe in that. You've got to find the reality and see that it's not the end, if it isn't. Anyway, so I was looking for funny and trying to turn things into funny all the time. And after a couple of days, I started noticing I was actually relieving the stress of other prisoners. And then it dawned on me what I was doing. And I went, oh, hell, hell. I'm like, um, the." have you ever seen the Italian movie Life is Beautiful?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, because we both speak English, I would think the title would be the same. Anyway, it's Roberto Bellini or something like that. And what the plot is, is he and his son are in a German Nazi prison camp. But what he does is convince his son is it's a summer camp. They're there to have fun. So throughout the whole movie, he's doing that kind of thing, trying to make it fun without getting him killed or beaten. When I grew up, one of my dad's local heroes in Detroit was a weatherman. For one of our major stations, even from ABC. In Detroit, it's called WXYZ TV. His name is Sonny Elliott. That's not actually his name, but it was his TV name. He actually did that, and he was in two different prison camps in World War II. He was the class clone. He was the one that saved other prisoners by giving them to laugh. Uh, the kind of stuff when you read Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, That's one of the issues he talks about is laughter. But the other one, of course, the main one for him, which then led to his entire career once he got out after the war, was people who had a a reason to live almost 100% of the time survived. It was when they lost their reason for living is when they screwed up or they died.
1: He he said that um, sometimes you could tell that they they weren't going to last another two days. He could could tell when... They lost it, meaning or purpose.
0: Right. I hadn't thought about that, but that's true. That's some of the examples he talked about. He could actually predict because it became his obsession, one, to stay alive. And he does admit in the book that he did things that he wasn't proud of, but he said, I will devote my life to saving other people if I get out of here. And he did. I think the
1: the book's one of the treasures of human history.
0: I believe it is. Most people I know have read it. And we're greatly impacted by it. Yeah. I don't think my book is going to do that, but it will have some of the flavors of that. You know, If I had been in for a year and been in a true prison, like a prison camp, no, mine was like bare-bones building, bare-bones meals, and the guards legally could never touch us except to self-defend themselves. If a prisoner tried to attack them, then we could, because they didn't carry guns. Very few of them had guns. And those were not the ones who usually we saw in the block. But there were some who were just pain in the asses, which is welcome to the human, humanity, who liked to yell at prisoners. And most of the time they yelled in, in mass. Instead of yelling at a single prisoner, they would yell at all of us. Like, get up, go down the stairs, down. You know, there was no need for it. But that was their obsession with their job. Yeah. And... What I did with the prisoners is I got to know some of them who could speak English. Others who couldn't speak English, I got to know them non-verbally, not verbally. Um, I would make facial expressions about the stupidity or what we remember from the 70s, the Peter Principle, you know, that people rise to their level of incompetency. Why else would he be a prison guard? <laughs> he couldn't find a fucking job anywhere else. Now, they weren't all like that. The greatest percentage of them... That's why even some of the guards became some of my angels were just doing their job. And some of them did go out of their way to try to help me. Not many, but some. The others just did their job, and then there's just a few that were just pain in the asses. And you had to be very careful, because if you provoked them, you were asking for trouble, because they could move you to a more secure block, and you'd be up shit's Creek. Yeah. Which happened to a couple people who got rather loud and what we call mouthy. Uh, they just moved him out in the hallway and gave him a blanket and that was it. You sleep by yourself, you son of a bitch. Yeah, there's all that kind of stuff that happened too. But like I said, with this woman from the State Department told my daughter he's in a safe prison. Let's be thankful he's not in Syria, not in Iraq, Iran, or Somalia. Those are all where most of them don't come back alive. Wow. And the day after I the day after I returned home, I got home on the nineteenth. And I think it was either the night of the 19th or the morning of the 20th when the announcement was made about the 26-year-old American who was working as a volunteer in Syria. He had been in captivity for over a year. They had beheaded him. Because I wrote immediately, because I was still getting a lot of emails and Facebook messages and trying to respond to as many as I could find to say thank you for your support. I will never know what really got me out. But I know some combination of all of what was done probably is what caused it. But I'll never really know, uh, and I'm not going to push it to try to find out because I think I'd end up in trouble. But uh, I wrote to the people as many as I could through Facebook and other social media. I said, folks, I greatly appreciate all you've written, all you've said, those who've donated money, those who made phone calls, and so forth. I won't know all of you, but you will please know I will never forget. And I wish I could thank you individually. But please, save your prayers for this young man and his family. He's dead. I'm alive. I'm lucky. Anyway. But no, I never... The food was terrible. Yeah. The boredom was worse. That's where I had to use the creativity and the laughter was the boredom. I only was able to find a couple books in English. One, coincidentally, was by Dan Brown called Angels and Demons. And my working title right now is My Angels and My Demons. But I'm only writing about the angels I know point blank about that were in the prison in the jail, not about all the people on the outside other than general references. Because some of them actually really don't want me to write a book.
1: Uh, And others
0: want me to write a book. (laughs) Well, one point blank. Who was one of the ones who was greatly involved, donated a lot of money and a lot of his time, and made a lot, uh, offered lots of connections, a tremendous amount. He point blank said, "You're not the hero." And I said, "I'm not trying to write a book about being a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm a, you know, fool. that took a photograph that knew would might get him in trouble, but I didn't take it that seriously because I am an American. I don't take that shit seriously, most of us." Well, I know I've been hassled in a few countries about taking photographs. Your country for one? oh No, not your country. I've never been hassled in New Zealand. In Australia, I was in um, along the beach at uh, Surfers Paradise. A couple men gave me a hard time about photographing uh, children doing things on the beach from a great distance. I was just trying right. to capture memories. I'm not doing pornographic photos. I'm taking photos of a surfing class. I'm taking photos of a, um survival skill class because I've never seen anything like this before and he took it immediately that I must be some kind of pervert and uh, I just walked away, used my telephoto and took a couple sample shots. I didn't overdo it. But. Um, and sometimes in malls, especially in Singapore, their security people are all taught, don't allow photographs. I've been hassled a lot in Singapore about that. And then I wait until the guard goes away and then I take a couple of photos, and off I go.
1: Here Very in cool. New Zealand, the, the people, people don't like the photographs in the malls either. So malls are one of our sensitive spots.
0: Yeah. And it's like I don't malls. doubt that. And in this country, it's actually it's not totally illegal, but it's not generally accepted for taking photographs of people in public.
1: Yeah.
0: If you look at the greatest amount of my photographs, there are no people Because I don't. I'm taking the architecture, I'm taking the design, I'm capturing the space. Only at football games or bullfights do I take pictures of crowds. Um, And then, of course, at the great conferences, like at the New Zealand one in 2013, I'm usually the um, official photographer trying to capture the feeling of the conference. (laughs) What the conference uh, people do with them is up to them. I don't charge them for it. Sometimes they pay me. Sometimes they give me a reduced fee. But it's the way I take notes now. I almost never write anything down anymore. I photograph it. And if someone shows slides, um, I take photographs of the specific slides I liked rather than asking them with their permission without asking them for a whole set of their slides that I'll never look at. Because some people overdo it with their words on their slides. But every once in a while, there's just the perfect one. And with my camera, especially this new one that I was bought for me by a South African photographer friend. After he knew I lost my other camera, I didn't ask for it back. Not that I lost it. They didn't offer to give it back, but I didn't ask for it. I didn't want the memory of that thing in my hand. Wow. Um, And so now I have this beautiful red Fuji. And I can hand hold and take photographs from 500 or more feet away focused. It's uncanny. I think the
1: underlying um, message you've got about, you know, just that line, is, is this terrible situation something where you can see yourself laughing about it in a few years' time, um, that's right. such a good approach. And um, I, I'm thrilled with what you've said. We, we might have to kidnap you, Alan. <laughs> anyway, that almost just-
0: happened to me in in um, South Korea. So. Anyway, so I tell people I work only to pay for my addictions and my addictions are creativity conferences, traveling, and storytelling festivals. No, I'm doing two sessions, two you know, fun drawing kind of sessions. Uh, one's drawing, one's more four-dimensional than drawing. And he seemed to be indicating that they wanted to do something, as you just said, perhaps in the promotion, about me and my story. And that's fine. I'm, I'm honored, because when I come back in April to the U.S., I'm going to be at the second Southern Fried Laughter Conference, and that's my story. You know, um, I love angels that. and demons. What I learned through four plus weeks in jail and prison, which I gladly will do, or you know, a few minutes at a general session, talk briefly about it. Or people want to talk, we can sit and talk at break times.
1: I hope we can meet the needs of your addiction when you come over.
0: Oh, you definitely will. It was phenomenal last time. waynes I didn't get to meet everybody, but I met many of the people. And they, you know, so creative, so committed to the arts and whatever it is they love to do. And those are the kind of people I try to surround myself with. This podcast was brought to you by The Learning Connection, School of Creativity and Art. TLC.ac.nz